This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. This is December 29th. I'm your host, Philip Nice, and as we approach the end of the Roman calendar year, we have the week in review for you, as well as a brief segment on the year in review, the biggest trends of the year as seen, as watched, as monitored by the Philadelphia Trumpet writers that I have with me. Here in the studio, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And joining us from our England office, but here in person, is Mihailo Zekic. Hello. And joining us from our England office over the internet is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. We're going to review our four regions. We have divided the world into four regions of the Middle East, Europe, Asia, and Anglo-America. We're going to start with the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, give us a quick rundown of the top stories that our listeners need to be aware of for this week ending in December 29th and 30th. Yes, yeah, so this week's been a bit of an interesting – I guess it's a good week to wrap up the year in because a lot of trends that we've been following throughout the year are having more development. On Tuesday, the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Turkish Parliament gave its approval for Sweden to join NATO. Uh, in case if people haven't been following this story too well, yes, Sweden has not joined NATO yet after – whatever it's been seven months uh, or, or that sort of thing but turkey has been the main stonewaller in that looks like that hurdle is going to be overcome soon there still has to be a vote in the parliament itself then on december 27th uh, iran international released an exclusive showing that uh the irgc iran's uh shall we say militant terrorist army <laughs> yeah terrorist army that, that's basically the best way to describe them they've been collaborating with the taliban and al-qaeda to stage suicide attacks on israelis in third countries like georgia uh, cyprus some of these other countries that have had high profile attacks against israel you'll hear a lot of people in the news talk about iran as if they're separate from all these groups that they stand for the different different things that they hate each other that uh, iran's not responsible for these groups you you Proof like this shows that, no, Iran is actively collaborating with these groups regardless of what they may say at press conferences and just goes to show how much Iran really is the king of Islamic terror, wherever it may be, the king of the South, as we often say. And speaking of Iran, the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency said on December 26th, the day before, that uh, Iran has tripled its production rate of uh, 60% enriched uranium. For the most of the year, they've been slowing that down, probably in the shadowy Iran nuclear deal that we've written about in our print edition a bit. Uh, but that's out of the... and. Even when they were slowing down, they were still producing more. But that any pretense of trying to denuclearize the country is all but gone now. They've ramped up production, most likely to do with its opposition to the West with the Israel-Hamas war. 90% is uh, weapons grade, but there's no known civilian use for 60%. The only reason they'd be producing that much is to turn into 90%. So that's obviously something we're going to keep an eye on as well. If the legislature can't put a law determining how the court, how the this branch of government is supposed to act who decides w what the limits of the court are who decides what's legal for the court to do 
if it's not the body that's supposed to make the laws, the court's basically saying we decide our own laws and we have power over the institution that makes the laws in the first place. It doesn't take that much detective work to figure out that's not what a court is supposed to do. And that's not what the Israeli Supreme Court was originally intended for or how it behaved in the first few decades of the country existing since 1948. Uh, again, the war is still going on, so a lot of people are probably going to uh, still be focusing on that rather than attacking the court. And this is a draft decision. It should be emphasized. Nothing is made officially law yet. But considering everything Israel is going through right now, this probably could not have come at a worse time. The fact that it was just one judge that vetoed it, I think, is going to show there's going to be a lot of outside pressure on the Supreme Court coming from both the right and the left to either get that one judge to convert or to not let one judge to convert. So we'll uh, either way, it's not going to be pretty in the near future. Right. One judge. Uh, and again, a leaked decision, a split decision from the Israeli Supreme Court uh, arguing that it does indeed have the right to veto any and all laws passed by the people through their representatives uh, based on whether a majority of Supreme Court justices think it's reasonable. And that's literally the word they use. They So. Prime Minister Netanyahu trying to rein that back, trying to take power back from the judiciary to the the legislature, the representatives of the people uh, who are supposed to make the laws in a republic. So we'll keep an eye on that, of course. I mean, the internal struggle that the United States has had in in some ways is reflected with this internal struggle with, with, as you said, demonstrations on the street and so forth um, that were really uh, major, major news um, this summer. So the war inside of Israel, the political war inside of Israel, rages on. Indeed. Uh, again, it's, it's a draft decision, so we'll see exactly how this turns out. But this is no less of a threat to Israeli society than the Hamas attack itself. Um, you think about – we often make parallels with what's going on in Israel today and where it's leading to – the eighty seventy siege and the Romans attacking the uh, the Jews. Uh, right before the Romans were able to attack the Jews because the Jews were so divided and fighting amongst themselves as well. Uh, civil war is a decent. More people are talking about civil war in Israel now than they probably ever have been, and that's obviously something not good. Uh, we've are written extensively on this. Our editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, for August twenty twenty three print issue, wrote an article: "The Jewish nation has no helper." That's the Jewish nation has no helper. It goes into details on why we're focusing on the state of Israel, what we expect, and what it means most importantly on Bible prophecy and what God has to say about that. We'll keep an eye on that. The Jewish nation has no helper, a biblical phrase applied to a modern biblical nation. Our next region is Europe, and joining us from our studio in England, overlooking Europe there over the channel, is Richard Palmer. Richard, give us an update of what you're seeing Yes, you make it sound a bit like I can see France from my house, which probably would have been a bit of a warmer part of the country if if that were so. Uh, but most of the news this week is updates from stories that we kind of covered even last week or on previous episodes of this show. The Polish government's attempts to shut down Polish state media continue. The Polish news channels have been liquidated. Last week, they tried to put in place new management, uh, getting uh, illegally. That failed. Uh, now they're using the fact that a budget hasn't been passed as an excuse to basically put those companies into bankruptcy, presumably then restructure them with their own managers in place and use that to take over these TV companies. 
we also heard last week from Simon about the dramatic events taking place in the Red Sea and the way that that's being shut down. Uh, I think it's really interesting that uh, as he pointed out, this really does affect and really does concern Europe. This week, we've seen a bit more response from Europe and a lot of European powers uh, sending or several sending ships, but they don't want to participate in the American-led mission. Others have said, no, like if, if there's a European mission or there's a NATO mission, we'll go, but we are not helping with a United States-led mission. It's a remarkable refusal to cooperate with the United States and I think is an indication of a key breakdown uh, Europe's no longer willing just to play second fiddle to the U.S. military. And though they're aware of the problem down there, if they're going to take care of it. They're not going to do it as an American ally or an American sidekick. They want to be doing it and, and being involved in their own part. And then also this week, we had a couple of uh, pretty huge European figures died, Jacques Delors and Wolfgang Schäuble. So uh, Jacques Delors is a a major architect of the modern European Union. He played a key role in, in the, the Treaty of Maastricht that played the way for the Euro. And he really did have a strong uh, religious vision for what should happen to Europe. He, he really saw it as, a, as a, a, a way to benefit the world and also, though, very much a, a Catholic project. Uh, and so he played a key role in in designing this European Union. And then Wolfgang Schäuble, who was the German finance minister during the 2008 financial crisis, and it was his decision, his insistence on tough rules on borrowing, that played a major role in extending Germany's power over a lot of that European Union, and then using the euro uh, as a tool to bring Germany in control over a lot of the rest of Europe, especially Southern Europe. So give us, as we wrap up the week and wrap up the year, give us the uh, biggest story of this week and, and perhaps one of the year. Normally, I wouldn't kind of count news interviews, say, as, as news. They're generally more people talking about the news. But I think this subject is important enough to really focus on. Uh, and that is Israel's ambassador to Germany. He gave an interview to The Telegraph that was published uh, just last weekend. Uh, his name is Ron Prosser. But he said that because of Germany's, quote, amazing response to the October 7th Hamas attacks and the fact that it is awakening to the Iranian threat, Germany is now Israel's closest ally in Europe and Israel's second closest ally after the United States. Uh, and so this is you go back to what we had in the front cover of our trumpet print edition, this article from trumpet editor in chief as you watch Gaza, watch Germany. And in that article, he said the most shocking problem in the Middle East is not what is happening in Gaza, but what is happening with Germany. And he really pointed to this changing relationship and the way that Germany is getting involved in the Middle East is the most important outcome from this attack. And I thought that interview uh, in The Telegraph really underscored that. So as you say, just an interview, but uh, some, some uh, a major, major statement of friendship, of, of a change in the relationship between Israel and Germany. Uh, why should we watch this more closely than, say, one of the other stories you mentioned? I think that story that we're highlighting is just one of the most direct fulfillments of key prophecies that we're watching. And this is a big part of the reason why we this was on the front cover of our Trumpet Print edition, that there are sometimes when we're talking about Bible prophecy here, uh, you, know, there's, you, have, you, you, you need a fair bit of education to understand 
those prophecies and and there's a bit of explanation and and you can all you can prove that for yourself uh but you still need a fair bit of background knowledge to be able to do that but this story it's just a very it's a it's a very direct prophecy you can turn to scriptures like hosea chapter 5 uh and that talks about israel going and trusting to a a warlike monarch turning to assyria and looking to them for defense and protection and there are a whole range of other scriptures that you can put in right beside that that talk about israel in the middle east trusting assyria for their protection and mr armstrong shows in his free book the united states and britain and prophecy that assyria is referring to modern germany and there's a direct forecast that we have made for decades and decades that israel would look to germany for its security and we've seen this we've seen this gradually happen there are a whole when israel goes for submarines to put its nuclear weapons on it turns to germany they've already built this close relationship in so many ways uh, one of the things the ambassador talks about was this arrow weapon system that israel is selling to germany that will help germany uh, shoot down missiles and he kind of hinted that there's there's another major military deal in the works so this has been building for some time but now you've got this very direct situation where Israel is coming right out and saying look apart from America Germany's our best friend and that is exactly what we've been saying would happen for years and years that's already been proven right so it's worth looking into okay well what does the bible say that comes next after they look to Germany and that you get that betrayal coming next so this story is just is very worth watching as it is such a direct fulfillment of bible prophecy and such a direct way to see the bible's relevance for what is going on in the world and we do have that article that cover article from our latest trumpet print that goes into all of this in a lot more detail as you watch gaza watch germany as you watch gaza watch germany you look for that in the show notes we'll include a link as we always do at the trumpet.com Thanks for that report, Mr. Palmer. We move on to the region of Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, you've been watching Asia and you've got some news for us. Yeah, first of all, a little bit of uh, at least somewhat good news. Uh, Alexei Navalny had been missing in the prison system in Russia for about three weeks, and many feared that Vladimir Putin had had him killed. We discussed this on a recent Trumpet Hour episode, and we spoke about how Navalny's disappearance came shortly after he had issued a call for Russians to vote for anyone but Putin in the upcoming elections. But it turns out Navalny is alive. He was in transit, apparently, for most of that time, being transferred by rail to a different prison in a very remote and arctic part of Russia. So it's it's not all good news. The new prison is in a place where there's an average of two hours of sunlight, I think, per day. Um, an extremely miserable place to live, not to mention being in a Russian gulag there. But uh, Navalny does appear to be in high spirits. He issued a message through his lawyer on Tuesday, joking about how he's now the new Santa Claus since he lives so far toward the uh, North Pole. But it does serve as just another reminder of Putin's ruthlessness. Then another quick one here on Chinese leader Xi Jinping. On Tuesday, he vowed to prevent anyone from, quote, splitting Taiwan from China. So these are the kinds of furious pledges we're hearing from Xi more and more. He's really staked his legitimacy as China's ruler on this vow to seize Taiwan. But the way he phrases it is entirely inaccurate because the People's Republic of China 
and the Chinese Communist Party that leads it, they've never controlled Taiwan. So, you know, he tries to sell this as a rogue province that needs to be brought back, the territory needs to be brought back under his control, but that's inaccurate. But the, uh, you know, the inaccuracy aside, his determination to seize Taiwan seems to be intensifying, and 2024 could be a really interesting year for that geopolitical flashpoint. Another quick one here about Japan. The Japanese are growing more and more worried about aggression from Russia, North Korea, and most of all China. And uh, at the same time, Japan is less and less sure that they can count on the U.S. to protect them. So Japan is ramping up their defense spending and military power. This week, they passed a record $56 billion military budget. It's their 10th consecutive year of major spending increases. And uh, there's also more and more chatter about Japan developing nuclear weapons. If you know anything about the kind of fanaticism that overtakes the Japanese during wartime, then you know you know how, how chilling the idea of them having nuclear weapons is. But it looks more and more like that could become a reality. So a lot to keep an eye on there. So that's Russia, that's China, that's Japan. Uh, you did a video, uh, I think we'll post today, about how India is also uh, – becoming more of a, of a close economic partner of, of Russia. So the, the major, major powers of Asia and of the world, uh, all active, all on the move there. Which of those are you going to focus in on for the main story? For the big story, I wanted to talk about Russia and just that Russia's war on Ukraine rages on. We're now approaching the two-year anniversary of this terrible war. And just today, Russia fired the largest aerial barrage of the entire war. 122 missiles and 36 drones at the last count. Uh, the Ukrainian Air Force was able to intercept most of these, but several got through the uh, defenses and hit some just terrible civilian targets. There is a maternity hospital in Dnipro and also a shopping mall that was struck, a kindergarten in Lviv, some metro stations in Zaporizhia, and some apartment buildings in Odessa, Dnipro, and Kiev, the capital. Um, one of my contacts in Kiev sent me his view of the city this morning, just from his apartment building. And it is horrifying to see. Um, apartment buildings are just blazing on the horizon and, and very close to him as well from these missile strikes. The death count so far is 24 civilians and many wounded. And, and those figures are expected to rise a great deal as the rubble is cleared. So just a major attack by Russia striking these civilian targets. And that follows an attack earlier this week on a train station in Kherson, which also killed and wounded many civilians. So just a, a, a notable increase in these kinds of aerial attacks. And then this week, Russia also made what appears to be a, a significant gain by capturing the city of Mariinka. That's in eastern Ukraine, and, and there's some debate about it. Some in Ukraine say that they're still holding some of their positions. But if it is true that Russia has captured Mariinka, this would be Russia's biggest military success since the capture of Bakhmut back in May. And the Russians are calling this a liberation, you know? They've liberated the city, they say. But wow, the, uh, the video footage of this city, whether Russia has fully taken it or not, this used to be a thriving place, bustling with thousands of people just living their lives. But it is Toyu and Boyu, just ash and rubble, a few skeletons of what used to be apartment buildings. Um, so just very sobering to see the profound destruction that the Russians have wrought there. Russian forces have also admitted to using illegal tear gas 
on Ukrainian forces. This is a gas that's prohibited by the Chemical Weapons Convention, which Russia is a signatory of. Um, so I'm not sure why they admitted this, but they did acknowledge that they're now using it to smoke Ukrainian soldiers out of their fortified positions. And um, the tactic has helped Russia to gain more ground. But it wasn't all good news for the Russians this week. There were some notable Ukrainian accomplishments. Ukraine took out five Russian warplanes, along with the pilots of some of those. These pilots, with their many years of training, are even more valuable to Russia than the multi-million dollar warplanes. So that was a big blow. Ukraine also struck a large Russian warship that was docked at Feodosia, Crimea. Um, they hit that with a British Storm Shadow missile, and it looks like a crew of 60 perished. So some uh, some notable losses for Russia and probably the reason why they increased all of these brutal aerial strikes on civilians. Um, there were also some Western aid packages to Ukraine that are now finally going through, but they are smaller and it doesn't look like these will be enough to enable Ukraine to oust the Russians. They're mostly including the shells which we need. They're including the small minor equipment, but unfortunately this is not enough for Ukraine to make a successful offensive. Because all the packages which were given to us for the last half a year or so, they are only enough to sustain where we are. Because when we are saying, guys, we need F-16, we need Storm Shadows, we need rockets like Atacams, which can target for 300 kilometers. That was Ukrainian political advisor Denis Ganza just you know, lamenting the the dearth of heavy equipment that Ukraine is receiving. And that shows that if current trends persist, we should expect Russia to probably keep on gaining more momentum. So a terrible punctuation to a year of war in Europe. We're watching this closely as much of the world is, but we're watching it from a little bit of a different perspective. That's true. Yes. Uh, at, at The Trumpet, we really, uh, one thing we emphasize a lot is that these kinds of developments show that Vladimir Putin's ambitions remain totally undiminished. And he remains just as fiercely determined to conquer Ukraine, no matter how many Russian lives or Ukrainian lives are lost in the process. And, uh, and whatever happens in the short term, Bible prophecy shows that Putin will emerge from this conflict still as a strong man. And he'll go on to fight larger wars in the future. The, the main prophecy to go to to understand that is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 of that book. And, and we have an article that explains that in detail along with the related passages. It's called, Why the Trumpet Watches a Russian Strongman Dominating Asia. You can find that article at thetrumpet.com slash trends. We collect the overall, we collect the, the daily news and the weekly news uh, in association with the ongoing trend that we're looking for. And that is why we look for certain specific things and other things that might seem more important or might even involve more uh, suffering or death or money or whatever it might be. Uh, we, we skip over those and we focus in on certain trends. You can find out what many of those trends are at thetrumpet.com slash trends. Our last region is Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, what has been happening here in Anglo-America? <clears throat> yeah, the cost of grain has risen to a 15-year high. Uh, the sickness in American universities continues to intensify as a University of Wisconsin chancellor was fired in a pornography scandal this week. 
And a new study revealed that only 3.4% of journalists are actually willing to identify as Republicans these days. I think I, you mentioned uh, maybe it was a couple weeks ago about the the percentages of of university professors and 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 scientists who are uh, registered Republicans versus registered Democrats. The, the it was shocking. Well, it wasn't shocking, but it was it was notable how, how what by what large majorities many of those professions are registered Democrats. Um, it's not as shocking. Uh, to see that only 3.4% of journalists, 3.4% of the people who feed you information, identify as Republicans. Uh, what's the main story here as we're closing out the year in Anglo-America? Yeah, well, as we close out the year, the lawfare in America against Trump just continues to intensify and intensify. Yeah, Donald Trump was removed from the ballot on the state of Maine this week by the Secretary of State for the state of Maine, Sheila Bellows, uh, in a move that's probably even more unconstitutional than the Colorado Supreme Court decision. Same rationale. Um, we talked, I think, last week or the week before about the Colorado decision where the Colorado Supreme Court just glossed over the fact that says, said, well, because January 6th was an insurrection and because Trump led it, Therefore, he's banned from holding office by the disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment. Here, Maine has done the same thing, but it wasn't a Supreme Court case in Maine like it was in Colorado. It was just the Secretary of State taking unilateral action, saying that, well, if Trump's banned in Colorado, he's banned in here too. Uh, noting that there, uh, here's the, um, penetrating legal analysts of this. Uh, Bella said there was little trouble in concluding that the Capitol riot did meet the definition of insurrection. Uh, I guess it's just common knowledge. Uh, and Trump intended, and there's also little trouble in concluding that Trump incended, intended to incite lawless action. Further noting that a large and angry crowd entered the Capitol, assaulted Capitol police officers charged with defending it, vandalized and stole property, and ransacked offices. And the, they were organized behind a common purpose, which was to prevent by force the certification of the 2020 presidential election results. Now, um, granted, uh, like I said, a Supreme Court case in Maine or no Supreme Court case in Maine, the uh, 14th Amendment's a little vague on exactly how you're supposed to bar a president from office, whether it's a secretary of state or a Supreme Court or some other means. Um, you could make a strong case that Trump should be barred from office if he actually did any of those things. Uh, however, uh, as we've pointed out numerous times on this program before, like I said, the congressional meeting disrupted on January 6th was a meeting examining election fraud. Uh, and so the people, if any disruption, if anyone wanted it disrupted, it would be only the people who didn't want election fraud uh, examined, examined. If you were trying to do like a fascist coup uh, and prevent the election from being certified ever, which I don't believe, I've never heard any Republican say that that was the, uh, that was the goal. They wanted the election certified after they'd examined the evidence. 
th th there's no way anyone in their right mind could think that a couple January 6 protesters could prevent an election from being certified ever up against the full force of the U.S. military. Uh, so this is really just an unhinged argument that that was the attempt on January 6th is to make like chase Congress out of the chamber and make sure this election was never uh, certified in some sort of uh, like push. Uh, but yeah, that is the that is the case the Colorado Supreme Court's made, uh, and now in Maine uh, that the Secretary of State just unilaterally alleged without even taking it to the courts. So the top legal officials in in more than one state, probably more than two states, are advancing a legal concept that President Donald Trump wanted to have protests outside the Capitol and inside the Capitol indefinitely <laughs> and continue to serve as president of the United States while a an, an, uh, perpetual riot was going on at the Capitol building to prevent lawmakers from discharging their duties. This is, of course, the latest event in an ongoing political war that's happening and that's probably going to heat up here in 2024. Yeah, and the article will probably uh, put in the the show notes is is America's Supreme Court in Bible prophecy. Um, it's something we've been talking about more recently, saying that like the Supreme Court is going to have to come in and weigh in on the Colorado Supreme Court case to determine if Trump's eligible to run in Colorado, and probably even here in Maine to see if that Secretary of State was within their rights to just unilaterally bar. The leading Republican candidate from office by then. This is not. This is not a question the Supreme Court can gloss over. We need to know whether the leading Republican candidate can be a candidate, and something we've been waiting for a long time, based on Bible prophecies and Amos seven about uh, a king's chapel and a king's court. Um, getting the Supreme Court involved there. We also, if we have room for two articles in the show notes, can put another one titled "America's Broken Judgment," that goes through prophecies in Micah about just the corruption and the justice system in the end time because we're um i believe that article talks about like the 61 or so court cases against election fraud that got thrown out in the immediate uh aftermath of the 2020 election and now we're seeing with like what the um the courts in um Colorado and Maine and Pennsylvania and other states are doing shows uh, just a tremendous level of uh, corruption uh, that is can only really be fixed if the Supreme Court gets involved. Well, the Supreme Court is getting involved as far as fixing corruption in the United States. I'd say that it's going to take something a lot uh, deeper and w more widespread than what the uh, Supreme Court can manage. But the Supreme Court can manage a uh, assistance in changing the leadership back from a coup and a pretender to the throne to a actual uh, constitutional president. So we'll see what happens there. You're listening to KPCG 101.3 Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back.
All right, welcome back. KPCG 101.3 Trumpet Hour here broadcasting from Edmond, Oklahoma and connected to our office there in England and Richard Palmer. We are entering our panel discussion and this is the end of the Roman calendar year. So we want to just kind of look back over the year and give you our thoughts on the trends of the year, the overall trends that have have changed America, have changed Europe, have changed uh, Russia and China have changed the nations of the world the most since January 1st, 2023. So that's that's kind of our parameter here. And we, we offer this to you to think about uh, how the world has changed when you're in the midst of, of change, especially tumultuous change like we've had this year and, and in recent years. It can be easy to to sort of just tumble about in, in all the, the tumult and the turmoil of, of the ongoing wash of news but this is an idea to just take stock here in december 2023 to try to remember what the world was like in january 2023 so we're going to start with a trend of the year from mihailo zekic mihailo what have you noticed as one of the biggest changes of this these past 12 months well i think with the stories we brought out even just this program are all really good demonstrations of this i think one of the biggest trends that really affects all our regions would be the trend of lawlessness. Uh, I just spoke about what's going on with the Israeli Supreme Court. In that case, it's a def it's a struggle on whether any rule of law actually applies to this pretty big branch of government, where this collective whether this collective body is a collective dictatorship that makes the laws l'état c'est moi or if there's actually any laws that are governing the body that's supposed to interpret laws and and enforce laws. But for the state of Israel, this obviously has been something that's been on everybody's mind since January 1st. I mean, Mr. Netanyahu, he came into power just before that, and that has been perhaps even more so than the Hamas or the defining feature of his uh, premiership up to this point, just with how long this has lasted. But it's not something that affects is just Israel or the little country of Israel. Uh, we just heard from Andrew earlier about the lawlessness and trying to ban a presidential candidate where it's executive action by uh, a secretary of state, I believe it was so, somebody that uh, I keep almost I keep wanting to say general secretary that I mean, that's a communist term, but maybe this does apply to uh, <laughs> uh, to these circumstances, uh, state by state, and even and even just you, you, never mind that, but you look into the Jack Smith case, uh, case you think about uh, all the investigations going on in, in New York State about all his uh, overvaluing property and how that means he's the worst thing since Hitler. Uh, we or even Alexei Navalny, uh, what we talked about in Asia, with obviously Russia's not uh, not exactly a poster child for good democratic governance, but the fact that the government there is becoming so blatant and snuffing out opposition when legally on paper it should be protected. In Europe, you have what happened with the Polish election and the dismissal of their equivalent of the BBC, their state media, through, uh, again, the will of one man. Lawlessness, obviously, as long as there have been laws, there have been people trying to get around those laws. But the fact that there's so many people across the world doing it so blatantly, doing it in a way that catches the rest of the world's attention like it has been, I think it certainly is unprecedented. And... 
obviously it's not God's law they're attacking, but they won't even, Mr. Fleury, I can't remember exactly where at one point he said they've never been keeping God's law, but they're not even keeping their own laws at this point. They hate the concept of law itself. They're worshiping their own will. That's the only compass they have. And I think this year, even compared to last year or the year before, is certainly the biggest demonstration that we've had in a long time. I think that attitude is absolutely intensifying in it, and it's amazing to see it cross-border, cross-country, cross-ocean. The same spirit is what it is, the same attitude, the same human motivation of, of, uh, of will over law. And Andrew, you've, you've monitored that in detail with the elections and so forth. Um, Milo mentioned the, what your segment earlier. What's your thought on one of the big trends of the year? Yeah, I guess it could tie in with the lawlessness, but my big trend of the year is just deficit spending. Uh, we've got because I have a reprint article titled The uh, Biggest Threat to America's National Security that makes the case that America's national debt is our biggest domestic national security threat. And I wanted to focus on that this year especially because we finally this year crossed a, a tipping point that the Trump has been saying America's been going to cross in the next year or two for probably about five or six years. Uh, the, the event horizon keeps being pushed back. But to the point where we now actually pay more in interest on our national debt than we spend on defense. Uh, it was about um, around November uh, we crossed that point. And we're, we're now to the point that annualized, like if you take what we're paid this month and multiply it by 12, um, we're spending close to 900 billion on our military about 850 some billion uh but a trillion dollars on interest on defense uh and we we focus in on that as a um Niall ferguson who's uh one of the best financial historians in the world has gone through data from the roman empire from the soviet union uh and from other empires throughout history and saying that oftentimes when it gets to the point when a company has to or a company or country or uh empire or whatever has to spend more on interest payments than defense so much of its budget's being consumed by interest that they actually have to start scaling back on defense and can no longer defend their interest overseas, um, which kind of makes this like a, a trigger prophecy for many even more sobering prophecies coming down because there's, there's more shocking prophecies that the Bible talks about end-time America like uh, other – nations taking it sea gates and economically besieging it so like car batteries from china can't come or grain from these countries can't come or things that we need can't come here because they control the sea gates and then even uh, uh escalating past that to a, a european army um invading america and that's something you can just sit back and be like wow like, how could the pathetic eu army ever conquer the United States. Um, and one of the answers to that is that, like I said, our military power is not very soon is not going to be what it is right now, uh, simply because you don't have the financial resources um, to afford it anymore. Uh, because so much of your tax revenue is just going to try to pay for um, all these social entitlement and other programs, in addition to this. Uh, interest payment on America's cumulative uh, federal government credit card bill. Uh, 
that's a uh, trillion dollars a year and growing. You mentioned to me earlier as we were recording a video that the the even the uh, con- the Congress's own Congressional Budget Office has has uh, made a statement. I think back during the Trump administration that uh, we're we're not that many years away from when every new dollar borrowed goes to paying interest on the existing debt and that's called a debt death spiral and you can read more about that in that article you mentioned uh or you can read more about that in the article andrew mentioned the biggest threat to america's national security jeremiah jacques i wonder what your thoughts are yeah the trend that i would like to be considered as a possibility for the years most significant is that the nations of asia subordinated themselves to russia and to its leader, Vladimir Putin. And this is true even in the military domain. So this was uh, stunningly clear with North Korea this year. From August to October, North Korea sent over one million artillery shells to Russia to support the war against Ukraine. And yesterday we learned that in the last month, North Korea has sent hundreds of thousands more shells to the Russians. So this is, uh, of course, a direct violation of all, all kinds of sanctions that forbid nations from arming Russia. But the North Koreans couldn't care less about sanctions and are sending all they can spare and then some. North Korea is really digging into their stockpiles, just sending train after train to the Russians. Um, And I think that's because North Korea sees the lines being drawn in the sand for a global conflict, and they seem to be fully prepared to become a vassal to Russia. And then another nation where we saw this trend play out dramatically is Belarus. Belarus is not Asian in the in the conventional geographic sense, of course, but it was a USSR nation. And this year, Belarus fully subordinated itself to Russia. Their leader, Lukashenko, never passes up a chance to kiss Putin's ring. And he even went so far this year as to host some of Russia's um, nuclear weapons on Belarusian soil. At this point, many analysts don't even view Belarus as a separate country in the ways that matter. It's become so fully subjugated that many now see this nation of 9 million people as basically just another Russian state. Next on the list, India. With India, it's a little more subtle. India does try to portray itself as somewhat neutral in many global matters. It's even aligned with the U.S. and some frameworks. But you don't have to look far beneath the surface to see the Indians increasingly bowing to the Kremlin. First, there's the economics. You know, the the West has tried to isolate Russia, tried to uh, punish it by boycotting its oil. But India stepped up and dramatically increased its purchases of Russian oil. They went from buying almost none of Russia's oil before the war to now buying 40% of Russia's exports. So it's just a major lifeline that India is throwing to Russia. This year, India and Russia also took major steps to boost their military technical cooperation, including joint weapons production. And India has even sent many of its soldiers into Russia in recent months to take part in war games with Russian soldiers. So that was a stunning sign, despite what the Indian leadership may say from time to time, just a stunning sign of their support for Putin and Russia's war. Next on the list is China. With China, it's You know, this trend of subjugation is a bit more nuanced once again. China has 10 times the population of Russia, 10 times the economy. But we still see this trend happening. Xi Jinping, the leader of China, somehow recognizes that even though China outweighs Russia in those metrics, somehow he sees that China still needs Russia. He sees Russia as a vital counterweight to the West. 
And so like India, China has dramatically ratcheted up its imports of Russian oil. So that's, you know, invaluable to Russia's war effort. And also like India, China has sent soldiers into Russia to practice for war shoulder to shoulder with those Russian troops. So it's a major sign of uh, solidarity. And China has also found many creative ways to send Russia all kinds of goods that are vital to the war effort. When the war started, some analysts said that it meant China would kind of take advantage of Russia's distraction to become more dominant in the Russia-China tandem. Others said that China was furious about it and they would break ties with Russia over this. Some even said China would use the opportunity to seize some Russian territory, but none of that happened. Instead, Xi Jinping's China recognizes, I think more than ever, their, their need for Russia. And so the Chinese are, in some notable ways, submitting to Russian leadership. So those are the big four, North Korea, Belarus, India, and China. But we also saw this trend advance in uh, Myanmar, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan in some significant ways. And I think it's very notable that this is all happening at the same time that the West is trying to make Russia a pariah. So those, you know, Western efforts are failing. Many nations in Asia are submitting to Putin's will, subordinating themselves to Russia. And uh, I think it's been one of 2023's most dramatic trends. And when we recorded that video yesterday on India and China stepping up to buy uh, Russian energy exports, that that's perhaps just as important, if not more important, than trains of artillery shells. I mean, Russia needed that. The, the Western effort could have worked. To, to force Russia to stop its invasion just because it could not uh, run its economy uh, without being able to export its energy. And those nations stepping up in a, in a big way uh, tie themselves more to, to Russia and to Vladimir Putin, and even in a wartime scenario. So, Mr. Palmer, what's your trend of the year? Immigration. All across the world, uh, this has driven news events. The statistics in some places are absolutely stunning. So the latest figures uh, show that the UK's population grew by about 1% over the course of a year, uh, largely due to migration. You had 1 million people coming into this country of around 65 million. Uh, you have had 100,000 cross illegally in small boats since 2020. Uh, a pretty sm sm uh, it, it's had a real impact you know it's sometimes i found traveling around the country it's been a little hard to get a, a cheap hotel room because so many hotels are being filled up with with migrants you've got two percent of albania's working age adult men are now in britain and they've largely come across on these small boats you think that's stunning then you look at canada which grew one percent just in the third quarter of this year their population grew by 1% over a three-month time period because of mass immigration. And then, of course, you've got the United States, which I think many of you will be much more familiar with, where you've had 6 million cross just the southern border since Joe Biden uh, moved into the White House. And figures from there are stunning. You've got about a quarter of a million people coming across a month. Uh, you know, 240,000 in November. There are some reporting that it's going to exceed 250,000 for November. I mean, for December. Uh, so, I mean, these are nation changing quantities uh, of migrants moving in. Uh, 2021, 13.6% of America's population was born abroad. And that seems like that's got to have risen. You look at some states, for California, that's 27%. You're getting kind of close to the point where one third of California was born abroad. 
And you know, for me, for Britain, you you read articles about Britain in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. You know, it it's, it reads like a foreign country, and a big part of that is because it was, like, it's just fundamentally changing what these countries were. And I mean, immigration is not the only thing factor there. You know, education, just declining morals. There's a lot there as well. Uh, but it's changing these countries. And then you look at Europe and so much of the news this year has been Europe's response to migration. And it's been things like Kurt Wilders, absolutely stunning victory in the Dutch elections, just uh, you know, storming close to power. They're still negotiating. But because this country is having a massive reaction to what is going on with migrants you've got the nordic countries coming together to try and deport migrants you've got the european union agreeing to overhaul the immigration system and build detention camps for migrants so they can throw them out much more quickly you've had terrorist attacks uh linked to migrants a man armed with a knife and a and a hammer you've got sweden descending into gang warfare where now news events of people throwing hand grenades on the streets of stockholm is just normal that's not even news now that's just kind of you know part of the local general general background islamic terrorists killing a teacher in france uh you know this is driving the change in europe and it's driving a fundamental change in the way that europe sees itself the way that the role that they're playing and so it really this one trend is pushing forward two key prophecies it's right there with the decline of israel the modern nations of israel this is an intentional crisis and it is bringing these countries down and then it's also driving this change in personality to Europe in a much more authoritarian and much more Christian in response to these Catholic, uh, Islamic migrants uh, and driving the rise of this much more muscular uh, Catholic superpower within Europe that we have been forecasting as well. So wild lawlessness, wild debt, wild immigration, and Russian Putin dominance, those are four trends that have left us in a different world here at the end of 2023 than we started the year. And these are things that fit into what these trumpet writers have been watching closely, what trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has been watching closely. You can check the show notes there at thetrumpet.com uh, for more on that. Some of these articles some of these booklets will point back to forecasts of these types of things these things themselves from years ago from decades ago and again that trumpet.com slash trends section being an example of how we are looking for specific things we we're, we're looking for specific news specific events to that continue specific trends and there's a there's a strong reason for that and you'll see that in the booklet you'll see that in the show notes you'll see that in uh, the trumpet.com slash trends that's all the time we have for today we want to thank parker campbell for uh, among his many duties handling the uh, recording session for us for isaac lorenz editing and we thank richard palmer mihaila zekic jeremiah Jacques, and andrew miller for continuing to watch our world and give us an update in an hour or less that's all the time we have we thank you for joining us and we'll see you on the wednesday edition of trumpet hour <laughs>